I'll be back with another full 15 minutes of all the late news at 11 o'clock. And now here is Gene Shepard. He says, among people who like uh, instant coffee, we tested our new instant coffee against uh, fresh perk coffee, and uh, our coffee won. That's one of the open-ended. That's a self, uh, a self, uh, a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy, right? That's like saying, uh, among people who like to eat erasers, uh, we have tested our eraser against. Uh, Ham sandwiches and our erases won. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, the, the, hey, you know, speaking of, uh, no, I'm not sorry. To hell with it. My God, I'm not sorry. No, why? Why did I say that? That's ridiculous. I am not sorry. And by the way, I'm not sorry. I grew a mustache. Although I must say, it's getting to be unbelievably uh, controversial. I, I yeah, I'm, I'm starting. I'm starting to get the, these angry letters. From people who say, uh, you know, either shave up that mustache or I won't never listen to you again. You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, one, the one letter I, I got the other day said, Dear Mr. Shepard, I was disappointed and shocked to find when I saw you on television the other night that you have a mustache. I just believe that everywhere I go, the hippie atmosphere, the drug scene is getting... You know, and... Uh, I said, well, you know, after all, uh, all the great Old Testament prophets had at least mustaches. Some, some of the Old Testament prophets were made entirely of hair. Uh, <laughs> great mounds of hair with feet sticking out of the bottom. And uh, it is true that, uh, that the, the, the mustache uh, is highly controversial. If my father, who was uh, long since deceased, were to ever see this mustache, if you ever saw it, he'd flip because one of his favorite uh, words of advice was never trust a guy with a mustache and a bow tie. This is uh, you be careful, and, and if uh, if you run into a guy that's got both of those, you mean you know, like a mustache and a bow tie, never, never have nothing to do with that guy. He's going to peel you like a grape. And uh, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> maybe he was right, you know. <laughs> so I would suggest be careful. But the, this is quite a startling mustache, isn't it? You agree with it, Bill? It's a, it's, it makes a very definite statement. It's somewhat satanic, but uh, nevertheless, it makes a genuine statement. And uh, I would like to say this, uh, that the net, the male has been the 50-50. Uh, you know, some would say, oh, wow, groovy, fantastic. Uh, I thought, uh, you know, I thought groovy was, a, was an expression that was long since, you know, gone out. 
like uh, you know, like hot diggity dog, but the, it keeps coming in. You want it to curl? I see. You want it to curl up like this? Oh, I can do that. But uh, for those of you, uh, I'd like to know because uh, I'm going to make a great decision here in my life. Uh, it is. It's a great decision. Anyone who's ever shaved off a mustache or a beard knows that it's not a thing you do lightly. It's a, it's a major decision. And uh, I would like to know uh, right now uh, where we stand here. Not that it will make one whit of difference, because, <laughs> uh, but uh, just where where is it? I mean, uh, where is it? Where is it today? What what uh, I'd like to put? After all, this is a democratic country, right? And the people have a right to know. And uh, so, uh, where do we stand? How do you, Jerry? Do you like my mustache? Mm, yeah, you better. How about you? Uh, you're less uh, you're less uh, with it, huh? You don't know. You'll admit it's changed my outward appearance drastically. That's right. I look like a guy you should not play a hand of poker with. <laughs> not quite, huh? Well, <clears throat> my feeling is that uh, it'll settle down when all the dust settles. And the only problem with mustaches, generally, and beards, when they get full, is the old problem of beard weevil. Uh, for any of you who've ever had a case of beard weevils, you know exactly what I mean. Uh, Bill, you've probably never had a beard, have you? Uh, you haven't. Well, if you've ever had a beard, you, if you're, if you're fortunate, you haven't had the beard weevil problem. But, but the beard weevil is a problem. It's beard weevil and beard roaches, two different things. And have you noticed guys with beards doing like this? Okay. A guy that is doing like that has either beard roaches or beard weevils. And it comes from uh, endless uh, doses of caked uh, Campbell's tomato soup in the beard. And eventually your beard, little nests of beard roaches and beard weevils take hold. And, uh, you know, after that, it's problems. The only, only thing you can do is ultimately shave it off and get defumigated and all that stuff and start over again. But uh, the beard roach is a problem. Uh, I have not yet had this problem with the mustache because I've been very careful. You remember when they called mustaches cookie dusters? You ever hear that expression? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, yeah. See, you just come from a very, very, very uh, respectable background, Bill. You haven't heard of much anyway. I've noticed that. The other day I asked Bill if he heard of Italy. And he says, oh, yeah, that's that kind of food they make down there. I see it on a sign. No, that's a country, Bill. Uh, the food came afterwards. And, uh, yeah, that, well, ignorance, I'm not putting anybody down for ignorance. I have a great dollop of it myself. Although I attempt to hide it at times, other people flaunt it. And, uh, and yes, and then put it in our credo. And uh, ultimately have it hemstitched on pillows. But, uh, <laughs> I don't want none of them cheese things. But, uh, you know, we're getting far afield here. I meant to, uh, yeah, by the way, speaking of uh, putting it into a credo, uh, I, 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 Take great pleasure tonight in reporting to you out there that uh, at last uh, our artistic uh, urges in our time are beginning to take a realistic uh, twist. Uh, for a while, art generally, and, and uh, people art generally, it was quite romantic. And uh, I'm a student of a certain type of art which is not often talked about. Uh, for example, well, well, my, I, I, I'm a student of, uh, of aquarium architecture. 
aquariums. You know what is? It? Do I have to explain to you what an aquarium is? But you understand what that is? That's that you know that glass thing with the fish in it. You've seen that water, all that. Yeah. All right. That's an aquarium. Well, aquarium architecture is how the aquarium or aquaria is uh, is landscaped and decorated. Now you've seen uh, for a long time the bottoms of aquariums or aquaria tended to run to little uh, medieval castles. On the bottom, you see the little castle on the bottom there? Well, this was a highly romantic concept of an aquarium. And it was uh, the Rococo period of aquarium architecture was when the little uh, statues, once in a while you could get a little mermaid on the bottom. You've seen those little mermaids they put on the bottom of that. Occasionally a, a little pirate ship down there, you've seen that. That was a more daring aquarium. But most recently, and I'm delighted to report that the... Uh, that the art of aquarium decorating has taken a fantastically realistic term, a really a great turn, excuse me, not term, turn. Uh, and and I, I saw it uh, just inadvertently. I was visiting a, a friend, not really a friend. This guy chews tobacco and walks around, belches a lot. And, uh, you know, just a, a despicable character in most ways, but uh, nevertheless one who has uh, a certain... Uh, a certain flair for being attached to and absorbing the current now, uh, which is another way of saying the guy's somewhat with it. So uh, nevertheless, uh, I'm visiting this guy's house. See, so we're sitting there. Uh, we're eating pepperoni heroes. And uh, and I, I'm looking over the, the rubble of his house, which is uh, the thousands of old beer cans and, and uh, you know, all that junk in the house. And so I see, though, his one great pride and joy is his aquarium. Guy's a fish cuckoo, and uh, it's a beautiful aquarium. It's one of these great big 50-gallon tankers, you know, great big square one, beautiful aquarium, and all lit up. And he, it's the only thing in his house that he keeps clean. I mean, it's really clean, and it's beautiful. You know, it's all green, and it's lit up, and he's got all these fish in there, neon tetras and stuff swimming around. And uh, I go over to look at the aquarium. It looks a little different. I says, hey, uh... Clarence is fantastic. This aquarium, he said, yes. He said, you've been working on it. And the bottom of the aquarium, you know the bottom? Where the bottom is. And uh, you remember how they used to have colored pebbles, like little green, blue pebbles and little fairy tale castles in the bottom? The new aquarium trend is to have a real bottom just the way you would find it today. And so you can get little rotting tires. And you can get little, little beer cans, little tiny miniature rusting beer cans all over the bottom of the aquarium. That's a fact. I'm not kidding you. And uh, all, all, the, all the clutter, uh, yeah, rusting car bodies. There were car bodies and rust and crud on the bottom there. And you can even get imitation. It's really pure. It's, it's not uh, deleterious to the life of the fish. Uh, it's fake sediment. Uh, you can get the fake crud that looks like it's drifted out of the sewage system of some nearby city. And so, <laughs> and there it is. And it's really, really uh, pretty spectacular. You know, there's, yeah, there's a little, uh, it's all done with various bits of vinyl and stuff. And there's old newspapers down there on the bottom. And they're, they're, they look like they're rotted. And the, it's a very realistic bottom of a fish tank. And uh, very good. You can, yeah, in fact, he says that, the, that some of his friends are working on various types of uh, landscapes that uh, you can reproduce, uh, for example, the landscape of the bottom of the uh, of the uh, Harlem River, which would be exciting. Uh, the landscape of the East River uh, down in the lower teens, 
And, uh, you know, that would really be exciting, old rusting uh, bicycles and junk and and amid all of it there, you can see a, a, a form half buried in the in the silt, wearing a concrete overcoat. Uh, <laughs> the, the kind of stuff you'd really find in the bottom. So I looked at this and I said, you know, that's a that's a whole new trend in the in what has heretofore been a sickeningly saccharine uh, romantic scene. You know, the fairy tale castles in the bottom now. And uh, I says, uh, how far does this go? He says, oh well, you can do. It pretty much anything you want. I said, uh, what do you mean, anything you want? He said, oh, yeah. He said, you, you can do anything you want. He says, you know, now in the very hip uh, aquarium uh, landscape places, you can get tiny, little wee bitty miniatures. Of course, that's redundant. Uh, but you can get uh, little itsy bitsy miniatures of almost anything that would be found in the ordinary uh, river or lake bottom of today. And I said, anything? He says, yes, anything. He said, of course, you can't have some of these aquariums. You don't want to have kids around, uh, you know, because of the nature of some of the stuff you find in the bottom of the river there. He said, but for, you can have an adult aquarium that's rated X. Uh, <laughs> and so <laughs> I just thought you ought to know that uh, things are progressing well. I, I, I kind of like that trend. Well, it's uh, commercial time, and let's see. Oh, Castro. <laughs> yes, indeed. Some people spend their whole lives on a Castro. Castro's spectacular year-end clearance sale. Uh, they're having a discontinued, one-of-a-kind convertible sofas, love seats, sectionals, tables, chairs, even some uh, high-fashion accessories with savings up to 40%. It takes a lot to be number one, and Castro manufactures its own six plants, sells direct to you in its own 70 showrooms, and then delivers free. Anyway, they're having a big sale at Castro, a year-end uh, clearance sale, so get on a shtick. Get down there. Are you ready to hear that little Castro jingle? Hit it, George. Who was the first to conquer space? It's in Castro. Castro convertible. Castro convertible. Yeah. You know another thing, too. Uh, one of the parts of the other, uh, uh, maybe it's part of the same trend, but you can also buy the same kind of things that are in the river, that live in the river, to swim around in it. In short, uh, instead of having the usual goldfish or fantail, you know, the usual walking around dumb-looking fish, which reminds me, this is W.O.R. in New York, instead of the uh, usual dumb-looking fish, you can get real, the kind of fishes that really live in the river. For example, you, know, you can buy miniature carp now, a real carp. I'm not talking about, of course, the goldfish is part of the carp family anyway, but I'm talking about a carp carp, the kind that lives at the bottom of the Schuylkill River or the bottom of, of the East River and walks around and eats garbage. At the, you, yeah, yeah, that's, you know what a, what a carp is like. You can buy bullheads, a real bullhead, and you put it down. And so you could people your aquarium with the kind of stuff you'd see, like, uh, for example, you can get little green eels and uh, bullheads, carps, uh, toads, you can get a toad put in there and uh, have a, a genuine proletarian aquarium, you know, that's, <laughs> that consists of, <laughs> of what used to be called trash fish. And now they're down there. It's just like, uh, well, that's, there's another trend, you know. There's a trend that's going on out in the suburbs, which is kind of a rejection of the old values. See, I think, I think this is good. I think for years uh, people have, uh, have uh, had a set, set the kind of values. People, for example, there were things called flowers, right? 
flowers and weeds. Well, the flower was desirable, and the weed was uh, something to be fought, correct? But that was all a matter of uh, uh, viewpoint. I mean, uh, all a matter of uh, how the eye sees things. What? Who's to say uh, that, uh, let's say, a... Uh, that an orchid is any prettier than a uh, dandelion. I mean, who's, who's going to make that judgment? Well, we did. And I'm glad to see that a lot of this is going by the boards. In fact, a lot of people I know out in the, the suburbs are now preparing. This is all part of the new attitude towards things. Uh, they're preparing uh, actual lawns made entirely of beautifully nurtured crabgrass uh, that... Uh, and, and they'll be proud of it. I mean, it's a, he, he, he's, he's raising vintage crabgrass, as one friend of mine. He's, uh, uh, he's, in fact, sending all over the country for various hardy strains and uh, uh, beautiful strains of crabgrass, which he is planting in his yard in Darien. He's getting rid of all that, you know, that old stuff, that bluegrass and that Bermuda green and all that. And he's, he's going in for the real stuff. Uh, you can, you can uh, for example, I know one guy in uh, Flemington, New Jersey, who uh, recently acquired a uh, packet of seeds, not easy to get, of a virulent form of poison ivy. And uh, he's going to grow poison ivy in his backyard as an active thing, not a thing to be fought against, but an active thing. Poison ivy, liverwort, uh, crabgrass. You can put a few scorpions in your yard and uh, have, have an exciting yard. It's a little more exciting than the usual uh, green. Uh, you know that uh, one guy, by the way, gave up the whole damn thing and had his entire yard paved and uh, painted green over in Jersey. He's got flower beds painted on it, too. And uh, he can just change the flower. It's actually decals, the flower beds. You can have them change whenever you want. And uh, that way you can also use, the, you know, use your yard for playing stickball and various other things. And you know, certainly don't have to mow the concrete. So uh, we're moving in, in uh, very interesting directions. Do you agree, Bill? It's kind of silly. I mean, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> well, I, I I I don't you know I don't put anything down about that. I just think it's fine. I I have nothing against concrete. I have nothing against uh, crabgrass. But then again, on the other hand, I have nothing for carnations, chrysanthemums, and the various other things that people seem to have a hang up on. Right. I mean, why? What's it? Why? Why should you have to limit yourself to have a dog for a pet, or a you know, or a cat? You know, why not a crocodile, or a, you know, or a hooded cobra? Why not? I mean, just because they've been put down for so many years, and uh, you know, the, the world is changing, and I and I think for for the good. Uh, in fact, uh, I saw one of the great toys that I've seen recently. Uh, is a beautiful wind-up thing. You get a, at the, you can get it at FAO Schwartz. It actually is not wind-up. It's run with a battery. Uh, one of these little nine-volt batteries, kind of nice. It's a little uh, bathtub shark, and it goes like hell. I mean, it'll attack you. Uh, it's a, it's a little, you drop that in the swimming pool, and you get, you get a little excitement there on a on a Wednesday night. That little shark moves around. It has a sensor device in the nose that goes right at you, and <laughs> it detects. Uh, warm bodies in the water, and goes, and then the, when the when the it's a proximity fuse is what it is basically. Uh, you can also get yourself a little battery operated uh, uh, torpedo expelling submarine. Shoots the torpedo, explodes with a loud wham when it hits the ribs of your friend, 
And uh, <laughs> but uh, they, uh, if you, you think I'm being funny, but it's all part of uh, of the new cult of devil worship. This is all; these are all products of the devil, no question about it. And uh, for those of you who are interested, there, a couple of days ago we talked about the devil briefly, and uh, a woman wrote me the other day, and she said, uh, "I'm quoting." She said, uh, hey, "Shepherd, I cannot see how you have allowed your mind, which is obviously a fairly adequate mind." to take up such an obscene instrument as the Jew's harp. This instrument should be relegated to the very depths of hell from which it came. never occurred to me that the Jew's harp is, a, is an instrument of hell. And the violin, of course, is an instrument of the heavenly angels. I don't know, you know? It's a good sound. I like that sound. Bill, would you give me something to play with there? Let's hear it. The hell with you, lady. I mean...
Yeah, very nice. That's good, yeah. I don't, I don't know uh, what compelled me to do that, but, uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, what the hell. Did you enjoy that? Mm-hmm. I don't know why. But then one should not look, uh, aesthetics and beauty too close, right? Shouldn't examine, uh, it too closely, because then you destroy the fragile flower of, uh, of uh, gratification. You know, it's like wondering why the hell you're doing it when you're doing it. Which you should never do, really. No, no, no way. Well, now, uh, actually, though, uh, since the realism of our time is slowly beginning to... Uh, on the one hand, we're getting more realistic. On the other hand, we're getting far more sentimental. And, uh, both at the same time. It's hard to believe. Uh, but uh, here's a guy who wrote me a note. He says, recently... Yeah, this is right in keeping with it, see? says, uh, Shepard, he said, uh, I heard you mention on a recent broadcast that you used to race cockroaches. Yes, indeed. In fact, I still occasionally do race the cockroaches to what I'm eating. I've, uh, I've, uh, you know, I've fought many a cockroach over a pastrami sandwich. Some of them even brought their relatives. But uh, he's a small time. That's true. And he makes a point. See, if, for those of you who might have missed the cockroach uh, show, and uh, I'm one of the great chroniclers of the cockroach, and I was doing cockroach stories long before it became popular. Everybody's writing about them and all. And uh, But I, as long ago as eight, nine, ten years ago, I was advocating the cockroach as the one creature that will probably inherit the earth. You've, always, you've heard the biblical... Uh, uh, and joined her, the biblical uh, statement that the meek shall inherit the earth. They don't say people. At no point did they, did they refer to the meek being people. Uh, no way. There's no such thing as a meek person. That's almost a contradiction in terms. I mean, by the standards of the, of the entire uh, catalog of uh, creations. If, if, if you do believe in, the, in a supreme deity, you do. I mean, I don't know whether you do or not. But if you do, let's let's accept that premise. If you do, uh, and uh, and uh, you have to accept other premises too. Not only did God then, if you do believe in a God, create man, He also created the snail. Now the snail did not come full blown, uh, just you know, equipped with all that gooey stuff and everything, without having been created by something. If you accept the premise that man was created by God, you must accept the premise that something else created all the other things, right? Okay, well, in that case, then, uh, God must have created also the cockroach. Now, as it has been said many times, God's ways are mysterious and often uh, totally enigmatic to man. Why, the, why God created the cockroach will remain a mystery. But then I'm sure to cockroaches why God created man is a fantastic mystery, too. Because by cockroach standards, we are monsters. I mean, we run around and squirt them with stuff and step on them and stomp them. And I have not yet been squirted by anything by a cockroach. And I certainly haven't been stomped by one in a long time. Although several have tried it. I mean, the, the larger ones, but uh, they don't quite get They don't pull it off. They tend to just quietly hide under the daybed and wait their chance, right? Now, that is really the true definition of the meek. And, uh, yeah, and uh, they're not aggressive. They're just persistent. That's all. 
so there are there is a certain and growing body of opinion that the cockroach will you heard it here first i think i started that whole belief in fact i know i did but i think the cockroach will eventually take over the earth now I, uh, the cockroach is a sporting uh, creature has uh, has has been uh, has been investigated uh, by many people we used to race them bill when i was a kid you know how you race cockroaches well you catch a cockroach first right and you put them in a matchbox now you got your you've got your stable uh, or at least you've got the beginnings of your stable because most of the really good cockroach races would have four or five in their stable and because uh, you know it's just like anything else not all cockroaches are created equal any more than all men are created equal in short let's face it let's face one important thing uh, and it is this roughly Wilt Chamberlain plays basketball better than you so in the basketball playing scene you are not equal to Mr. Chamberlain right Okay. Now, uh, uh, you have to accept that that's the way cockroaches are. Some can run faster than others. And if you tend to think that all cockroaches are them bugs, referred to callously by people who do not know the, uh, the subtle differences. You know, how many times have I heard people say, uh, you know, the trouble with cockroaches, they all look alike. I can't tell one from the other. I've heard people say that. It's a tragic mistake and terribly demeaning to a cockroach. There are vast differences between cockroaches, and the, particularly in the speed angle. And, uh, and you find this out if you start raising racing cockroaches. Uh, to probably to, to the ordinary walking around klutz, all horses look alike. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> if you ever put $2 on one going to Roosevelt, you'll find that they are not all alike. And it could be very perverse. In fact, the worst-looking horse often runs faster than the best-looking horse. Is that true, Jerry? Yeah, and that's how many of you guys got euchred. They, you know, they walk them around before the race, and this great, fantastic-looking horse with golden tassels all over it. Yeah, picks his feet up, boy, and he snorts. And what happens when the gate, you know, when the bell rings? Nothing. That's right. And that little short, fat one over there with the patch over one eye, what happened? Zowie. Shh, nothing but a cloud of dust. And he paid seventeen fifty. Well, all right. So uh, this is the problem that you find with the cockroach, and we used to raise them. See, and the one you and I don't want to belabor the point, but I just uh, wanted to explain what this guy's talking about in his letter, and how you raise a cockroach. You make a circle. You make a big circle, about a ten foot circle, an absolute pure circle. And you do that by taking a five foot piece of string, and uh, taking chalk on the end of it, and holding it down on the other end. You run around, you make a circle. You got a good ten foot circle, right? And then you make a dot in the center where it is, and then on a given uh, on a given signal, you know, you you holler. Uh, everybody drops his cockroach, opens his little box, all at the same time, and drops them in the center of the circle. And then you jump back, and the cockroach that makes it to the line first wins. <laughs> now, uh, certain cockroaches have to be motivated. Uh, they'll just stand and look, you know, with their feelers going. Other cockroaches get the idea fast. You drop an arrow off like a shot. You're liable to lose your best stable, you know, your best stable entry down some drain so fast. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. And we used to color them. You take Crayola crayon and you color your cockroach. Everybody had his own colors. You know, some guys had purple with red spots. Uh, other guys had the, had the green and uh, that and you, and you yeah you actually have your own racing colors and you you decorate your uh, 
your matchbox in the same colors. You're, you're total stable. And we used to buy and sell cockroaches. A guy has a really great breeding cockroach. He's not necessarily a good running cockroach. A guy has a good breeder, uh, stud mare, you know, a stud or a mare, and uh, he uh, trade them off. And uh, so it's a quite a complex thing. But this guy wrote me this letter here, and he says, I heard you talk about your great cockroach racing experience. It's a shepherd's small time. I want you to listen carefully to this letter. It says, when I was at college in Florida, we used to race burning palmetto bugs in the dormitories. He says, keep in mind that your average Florida palmetto bug, you've heard of a palmetto bug? Well, a palmetto bug is a, is a it's really a, a euphemism. It's, a, you know, down south, uh, as it is true of the north, people don't want to concede uh, much. And uh, so if you have a six-pound cockroach, that sounds terrible, you know. The cockroach runs across your floor, and you can hear the floor creaking when he runs. And you can hear the thumping of his feet. You know, and he crashes through the screen door. Well, you don't want to admit you've got a 12-pound cockroach. So they say, oh, look, the palmetto bug. Well, they call them palmetto bugs. Now, that's just another name for a giant cockroach, and they do have them down there. They're fantastic. They're about the size of a mouse. Oh, they're enormous. And he says, You're, and would they move? You wouldn't believe how fast they are. And he is being very, very conservative when he says that your average Florida palmetto bug is at least three times the size of the typical puny cockroach of the north. Now, our cockroaches are called German cockroaches. These are, these are German cockroaches uh, that we have in this area, generally. And uh, he says, uh, keep in mind, they're, they're, well, I'd say they're more like ten times the size of an ordinary cockroach. Now, here's how they would race them. He says, once we captured a, a, our palmetto bugs, which isn't easy, we would turn out the lights and squirt lighter fluid on them. We would then throw a lit match on each bug and let them go streaking across the floor in the form of a blazing fireball. <laughs> now, wait a minute. I'm not laughing because I'm, I'm sadistic. I'm laughing at, at the strange twist that the human mind takes. Now, you can understand why we are not the meek. Not many cockroaches squirt lighting fluid on you and watch you go running across the floor a fireball, right? Leave it to man. He says, uh, unfortunately, the winner of the race met with the same fiery end as the losers. Now, here is where his point gets interesting. He says, lest you think the foregoing a barbaric practice, let me remind you that it merely reflects an earlier cruel youth which we all shared. The myth that little kids are warm and tender has constantly been perpetuated by TV shows such as Lassie and in such books by Dr. Spock. That is true. Nothing can be further from the truth. I agree with that. <laughs> oh, cruelty knows no bounds in a kid. He says, think of how many times you've seen kids torturing their pet hamsters or the look of glee on their faces as they frantically dissect the frog in science class. True. He says, I can remember the times that my mother used to drag me to the supermarket when I was a kid. Having nothing better to do, I would wander over to the front window, which in the windows of all supermarkets was covered with buzzing flies trying to get out. I would then proceed to grab the flies, yank off their wings, and left them to scurry about the floor. Now, that's true. Now, that, now, that is absolutely true. And not many adults do that kind of thing. He said, there was this kid that lived around the corner from me who we used to call the monk. He carried this procedure a bit further. He would take the de-winged flies home with him and chop off their heads in a homemade guillotine. 
The guillotine was made out of a matchbox, rubber bands, toothpicks, and a razor blade. The craftsmanship that went into its construction was worthy of the best of the Swiss watchmakers. The monk would carefully place a fly on the edge of the matchbox, pull back the toothpick, which was attached to the razor blade, and let the rubber band spring the blade down upon the fly, thus neatly chopping its head off. He would then place the fly head into a matchbox and repeat the process until he had dozens of matchboxes filled with fly heads. Now, these fly heads were left to age in the matchboxes for several weeks. Most of them would become uh, dry and discolored. However, every once in a while, through a rare combination of a neat cut, aging, and oxidation, a perfectly formed pure white fly head would develop. These pure white fly heads were extremely rare. It was, however, their very rarity, in addition to their dazzling beauty, which made them so valuable. Just as only a minuscule amount of coal will eventually yield diamonds, so too will only a very few freshly cut fly heads ultimately form into a pure white fly head, maybe one out of 200 at best. Kids from all over the neighborhood came to see the monk's collection of pure white fly heads, which after a few months numbered several dozen. Soon all the guys wanted a pure white fly head collection of their own. It was not long before everybody built their own guillotine kit by which they would deliver the coup de gras upon the unfortunate flies. <laughs> My own bedroom was the scene of such of much bloody guillotine. It must have resembled Paris at the height of the French Revolution. I could almost hear the rumble of the drums as I pulled back the blade, followed by a roar from the mob as I let the blade snap down upon the nervous little fly. Unfortunately, I personally was never able to produce a pure white fly head. The fly heads would crumble or become spotty after a few weeks. A few turned to a grayish white. But for some reason, I was never blessed with a pure white fly head. In fact, nobody in the neighborhood was able to yield the desired fly head. Only the monk, like a winemaker producing a perfect vintage, was able to create the elusive pure white fly head. The whole fly head affair became an obsession with me. I wasn't able to eat or sleep well. I was constantly breaking out into cold sweats. The only thing I knew was that I had to have a pure white fly head of my own. Finally, one day, I could stand it no longer. I walked over to the monk's place and saw him outside throwing darts at a frog. Hey, monk, I said. How about it if I let you take a look at some of your... How about it if I, if I took a look at some of your comic books? The monk had an enormous collection of comic books that went back maybe three or four centuries. Okay, but don't fall the pages back, said the monk, not looking up as he stared at the frog hopping around with darts stuck all over it. I went into his bedroom, and behind the stacks of comic books on top of a small table, I spotted what I was looking for, the matchboxes with the pure white fly head. Cold sweat came streaming down my forehead as I opened one of the matchboxes. I stood there gazing at the fly heads with all their pearl-like beauty. Quickly, I jammed one of the boxes into my shirt pocket and dashed home. Once home... I locked myself in my bedroom and placed, placed the fly heads carefully on the floor. For about an hour, I lay there in front of the fly heads, just staring at them with reverence. Finally, the scene of blissfulness was broken by an angry shout outside my window. Give me back my fly heads! It was the monk. I don't have no fly heads, I replied. And even if I do, I only want to borrow them for a while. I want them now, the monk screamed. Otherwise, you're going to have to pay me for them. They're mine! This was followed by a round of negotiations between us of such intensity as to put Harry Kissinger and Lee Doctor to shame. 
We were getting nowhere in our arguments when all of a sudden we heard a creeping, cheeping sound. Walking across the lawn was my pet baby chicken. The monk ran over and grabbed the chick. If you don't bring me my flyheads within a half an hour, you won't see a chicken alive again. He gloatingly yelled as he ran home. I was in a moral dilemma. My chicken was being held hostage. I needed to have those fly heads, but I was also strongly attached to my pet chicken. I already had the chicken for a whole three weeks, which is pretty unusual when you consider that the average lifespan of a baby chicken when owned by a nine-year-old kid is usually never more than one week, more on the order of hours. Finally, after wrestling with my conscience for a while, I grabbed a box of fly heads and went running down the street to the monk's place. As I rounded the corner, I spotted the monk in his yard. I held a large rock over his head with both hands. He held a large rock over his head with both hands. At his feet was my chicken. He resembled King Kong about to toss a large boulder on a subway. No, monk, no! I yelled in desperation. Womp! Too late. The monk disappeared into his house as I came running up to the chicken-smeared rock. I flipped the rock over, but there was nothing I could do. The only first aid I knew was artificial respiration, but it didn't seem appropriate to a chicken. I sat there for a while in, <laughs> in silent memory of the dead chicken and the 49 cents I had paid for it. And from within the monk's house, I could hear an evil laugh. As I mentioned before, shepherd youth is cruel. A former flyhead freak. All right. Now, there you are. Now, I would like to... <laughs> now, now, don't laugh. No, I'm serious. Don't laugh. That is one of the great myths of our time. That, the, that man is born a beautiful, tender creature. And that he cannot harm anything. And it's only later that evil society creates him into this monster. Whereas actually, the truth is probably quite the opposite. It's only society that keeps us from going around pulling people's heads off. <laughs> you know? And, and, and uh, how this myth got started, I don't know. Maybe this myth got started because little tiny babies are incapable, due to the fact that their muscles aren't developed yet enough, to decapitate you. You know, they can only lay there and, uh, you know, you've got to keep pouring uh, pablum down them. That's about all I have. But give him that. The five minutes after he's walking around, what's he doing? He's got a dog by the ear and is slamming it up against the front of the car, right? And now his true vocation has come. It's only when there is, you know, society in the form of you and other people come rushing up. Hey, you're killing Towser! Society prevents him from doing Towser in and... Uh, and that is the only reason Towser's alive and walking around and still eating Alpo. So I don't know how that myth got started. Did I ever tell you about the fantastic uh, thing? You know, this, this it, 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 it sweeps through crowds of kids like some kind of a peculiar plague, and then it disappears. Disappears. Did I tell you about the time that we went into the white mice thing? All of a sudden, it was a very big thing in the neighborhood, you know, neighborhood to have white mice, right? So, so one of the kids took his white mouse one day, and he discovered that you could get dye down at the dime store for 10 cents a package. You know, dye, the kind of you, the, you dye your curtains with. And he dipped his white mouse <laughs> into bright orange dye. At which point, he had an orange white mouse. Well, now, you know, that didn't do the mouse any good. I mean, that mouse was orange. Well, instantly, everybody ran around and dipped their white mice into various colored dye. Now you got green, blue, purple, yellow, orange, pearlescent. 
you have various colors of white mice. Well, that was okay for a while. It, uh, <laughs> the next thing that was tried was a little more basic and biological, which we will not go into because there are kids listening and might give them some idea. But suffice it to say that the, that the ingenuity of kids in the area of deforming the fellow creatures that walk the earth with us knows no bounds. The idea of constructing a little tiny matchbox guillotine to whack off the tops of heads would only occur to a kid. A, you know, particularly demonic uh, view of life. But, uh, oh, yes, sir, there, that, then there was a time... Nah, there's no point in going into it, but... <laughs> at this hour. But, uh, uh, there, uh, you know, there, there are all kinds of forms of, of evil... Say, it, it, it is a sadism, though, at that point. You agree? Did I ever tell you about the time that, that we found this this transformer? We had a we had a power transformer that we'd taken out of an old radio. Had about 700 volts on it, and we put some condensers in it, you know, in the in the, uh, in the output, and we put some big leads on these condensers, and we were ch we chased cockroaches around, and you'd apply both leads to a cockroach, and I want to tell you, if you think sparklers is exciting. You want to see an exploding cockroach with about 700 volts going through them. Pow! You know? Woo! We'd cheer! Woo! <laughs> oh, man, I'll tell you. Deep within the heart of every creature, there lies a ravening monster with purple fangs and glowing red eyes. Which reminds me, this is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Lester Smith and the News.